Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. This week, we have three stories for you. One from Joey and video producer Tim Leonard on composting in Reno. Then Jake and I talk about the Secretary of State race here in Nevada before wrapping up with a few Nevada monster stories for Halloween. All right, safety first. This route is more spread out than most of our routes. Um, kind of longer distances in between stops, but I actually prefer that. And then all the hills. I know somebody who lives here and they give me tomatoes sometimes when I ride past. Hey, Tim, how's it going? Hey, Joey. Uh, so we just heard from somebody up top. Who was that? That was Mike Harrison, a Reno rot rider, as they call themselves. He works for a company called Down to Earth Composting, and he rides an electric bike around town collecting people's compost for them. So compost, for those who aren't aware, is food scrap or biodegradable waste that is then mixed together to create fertilizer for crops. Things like eggshells, banana peels, moldy bread, and salads that your kids won't eat can all go into compost and they'll be broken down and later they can help foster healthy, nutrient-rich soil for your garden. I could grow hair, I would be a full-blown hippie. When I'm doing this, it's like, yep, I, I see the path that led me here and I'm so lucky to be living now when there's this explosion of new technology that just makes it better and better and better. Mike grew up biking the streets of Colorado before becoming a bike messenger in San Francisco in the 90s. He's always loved biking and being outside. A couple years ago, around downtown Reno and midtown Reno, I started noticing down-to-earth composting. And I just thought, you know, as a side gig, that would be really cool. And so I got in contact with Oz, and it kind of went from there. Oz is Oz Cupulu, the CEO of Down-to-Earth Composting. Mostly we're collectors and haulers of food scraps. So if I made dinner and I had like some eggshells and some leftover, like the heads of carrots or something, I could just throw them in a bin and then you'd come and pick it up. Exactly. We come by your house once a week, just like trash and recycling. So if your day is Tuesday, you leave your bucket out for us. And depending on where you live in the Reno area, we are either on an e-bike pulling a trailer or we drive our truck around and also collect compost. All right, so we're going to turn left here. One of those collectors is Mike. He pulls a trailer twice the size of his bicycle behind him, stopping at people's houses to pick up their compost. And looking both ways. Boom. The trailer technology is really taking off. So this trailer is basically this steel frame, and then we built on top of it. So it's highly customizable. There's a real explosion in, in this kind of mobility. So what we just heard there is uh, Mike riding his bike, actually. And Tim, you and I followed him around for during our reporting on the story, right? Yeah, it was kind of hard to keep up with him. Mike's kind of a speed demon with his, even with the trailer behind him, he's still hauling around, you know, the hills of Northwest Reno. Yeah, it was pretty impressive to watch his uh, his speed. But can you tell me a little bit about kind of what the process is that he's doing when he's picking these things up? It's not like he's just like riding by real quick and like picking up a bucket and putting it on the trailer, right? 
No, he's got uh he's got a bike. It because of the trailer hitch, it doesn't have a kickstand. So he's got this like method down where he pulls up, puts the bike down in a specific way so that it doesn't roll away, and then runs up to the compost bin. They have these special collection bins outside in front of their houses, switches it out with a clean bin, brings the compost full bin back to his trailer, and then picks up his bike and carries on. Yeah, and he also like the the ones in front of people's houses are a little bit smaller, and then he has bigger bins, and he's kind of transferring between the small bins and the big bins. He's also cleaning them out with this like organic solution that he's using. He was saying that it doesn't smell that bad, but I would say that you and me might think that he's just getting used oh. to the smell. <laughs> yeah, we definitely smelled the the compost. And what do they do with the compost after that? Yeah, so then from there, it goes to Carson City, where they partner with another composting company called Full Circle Compost. Um, And it takes about six months for that food waste to go from waste to uh, a usable fertilizer. We give soil back to all of our members two times a year. So it's really cool because you composting, but you, you don't have to take care of a pile in your backyard and like ask yourself, like, why does it smell the way that it's smelling? We like take care of all the dirty work for everybody. Oz has noticed since the pandemic, the business has seen growth where others have faced hardships. I mean, with like the shutdown and everything going on, that kind of made people start having to cook for themselves. Whereas before everyone was ordering takeout. And so now people are kind of seeing where their trash cans are filling up really quick with food scraps. And so during the pandemic, we were actually one of the luckier businesses. We grew a ton because of people cooking at home and wanting to reuse their food scraps rather than just throw them away. So the pandemic actually did good for us. The ordinary American is just throwing out their compost with their trash. And there are serious environmental reasons to not do that. This prevents this stuff from going into a landfill, becoming methane and causing those problems. Down to Earth delivers compost to their customers twice a year. So what are their clients doing with their compost? Well, they're helping their gardens, right? That's what compost is for. Here's Oz again talking about the soil in Nevada. Our soils here are really high in salt and then not moist at all. And so I think building a healthy soil for your crops to grow is absolutely important. And I mean, Reno, we have a couple things that grow really well, right? Like tomatoes kind of take off here and are pretty easy to grow. And so I've got, I do like tomatoes and peppers for the most part that I don't really have to babysit, but I mean, people, there's a ton of farms here in like Reno proper and they can grow kale and so many different things. So it's definitely doable. And I think gardening definitely starts with healthy soil. And I'm a gardener and I love all the, the full circle of gardening. So I feel like, all right, I'm doing my part. And maybe it's one of those things where if everybody did something like this, it, the world would be a different place. And if everybody got out of their car, got on a bike, the world would be, you know, our roads would be different. Our interactions would be different. And that's a personal thing for me. I own a car. I'm, I'm a hypocrite, but I, I try to minimize how much I use it. And I notice, you know, there, there's a there's very little you need a car for if if you can do what you do on a bike. Yeah, if you couldn't tell by now, Mike is kind of into biking. And while this story is about composting and a company pushing for people to live more sustainably, it's also about Mike, who embodies that lifestyle of sustainable living. In a general sense, I would say this is the future of what's called micro-mobility. I think all of us are going to see more and more e-bikes pulling trailers, hauling 
a variety of things. So I see these Amazon and FedEx drivers, you know, I cross paths with them when I'm doing this, and they seem very, very unhappy. Hopping in and out of a car, trying to park it, fighting with traffic all day long, that's one thing. This is a whole, this is a, a more connected system, I think. You can see there's a way, and I get this way myself, when you're in a car, you're in this little cocoon, you're separated, everybody's just like an opponent in a certain way. I kind of feel sorry for people who aren't out enjoying the day. So many people are kind of trapped in that lifestyle. We've heard these terms like gig economy or sharing economy or mobile businesses, which I did a story on last December, or micro-mobility, right? And, and these are a shift away from the traditional office job. Look at how so many companies are maintaining a hybrid work-from-home, work-from-office schedule post-pandemic. The Rot Riders were pioneering that type of work pre-pandemic. And Mike thinks most people will be interested in that work that connects you to your community and gets you outside more. And in his case, e-bikes are making that more of a reality. I'm another person on a bicycle doing work. And I think we're gonna see more and more and more of this. Even in just the last couple of years, I've noticed, yeah, it's exponential growth. And it isn't just people doing work, but like I'm seeing a lot of moms on an e-bike with their kid in the, in the seat in the back. And you can tell they're just totally enjoying it. Whereas if it was a regular bike, that would be hard work. I figure some people are gonna perceive what I'm doing as cool or fun and then other people are going to be like wow what a sad life you know to be stuck on a bike and to me it's the opposite of that but I, I get that we're a car culture and a lot of people think if you're on a bike there must be something wrong. And how is biking in Reno? I've noticed a lot of new bike lanes and they redid part of Virginia Street for bikes but it's not perfect and I wanted to know what it was like to bike around town. Reno I would give them credit bike lanes are getting better and so it's easier to interact with traffic. Anybody who is an urban bicyclist here will tell you you're on a bike lane and then suddenly at the worst possible moment it just ends and, and there was no sign that said hey in a little bit you're out of luck so you just have to cope and and part of that is maybe go ahead and, and jump into traffic a little bit use up that right lane make yourself obvious and just in general uh, motorists who are not aware that you're there and so sometimes they'll just pull up right behind you and almost hit you people will make a left you know directly in front of you so there's that watching for objects on the road so you know because stuff gets out there and if it's big enough and weird enough you hit it and it's an instant flat tire or it can just take you down. And what about the issues, not with the transportation part of the job, but with the composting side? Yeah, so Oz told us that one issue they have is people who compost those bags of chips or those quote unquote compostable forks, while they may break down, they aren't really adding any nutrients to the soil and could be adding microplastics. What I do see as a big issue are these products that are labeled compostable. And just with that, sometimes there's high level of microplastics that are in them. So technically it is compostable, it'll break down, but it's gonna leave trace amounts of plastic in the soil, which isn't the end of the world. I would much rather see it compost and then go to the landfill, but that's something to look out for. And a lot of times like the plastic bags are, that are compostable or the cutlery that's compostable, it really takes longer for them to break up than other things that go in the compost. And then we're not really getting nutrients from them. And that's what we're looking for is like a nutrient dense soil that's coming from our compost. It's not going to make a nutrient dense soil as 
as much as like tomato tops and strawberry tops and stuff like that. I also wanted to know about composting in Vegas. Here in Reno, we have a more temperate climate, but this podcast has to reach everyone in the state. And I know Vegas is pretty hot. You can still compost in Las Vegas. It's a little bit trickier than Oregon where it's like prime conditions, but you can still do it. You can compost in a drier climate. I like to water my compost a lot, especially for the little worms. It's very important for the worms to be in a moist environment. And so that's why we need to keep our piles a little bit moister. So in Las Vegas, even if you maybe water your compost pile once a week, that might not be enough because those little worms need that moist environment so that they can come in and do their jobs and everything. My goal for my company is to kind of diminish because that way, if there's no need for down to earth, then that means people are composting in their backyards or with their neighbors and they're all going in on one compost pile or we can start community piles at farms and churches and everything like that. On top of bringing the community together, as you can tell from people like Mike, it brings a lot of joy, purpose, and exercise to someone's day. It forces me to do a good day's exercise, whereas normally at 5.30 in the morning, I would make excuses like, oh, I'll do it later. Or whatever. You know, when there's people depending on it, I have to do it. And so it gets me out. And as I'm doing it, I get happy. When I go do other jobs, you know, everybody's a professional, everybody knows why they're there, but that, that joy isn't always apparent, you know, and with this, it's consistent. So this part of the job reminds me of being a milkman in the 1950s, which I like. Composting is not about being perfect. It's about doing better than we've done before. So if we can have different options and different things that we do to like help our soils, then I think we're doing great. Really intimidating trying to save the world as one person, but like just start and start trying. You can make a huge difference and a ripple effect. This story was reported and produced by Tim Leonard and reported and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. All right, well, hopefully that uh, last piece will encourage you to get out and get on a bike and maybe start a garden or something. And if that doesn't convince you to start a garden, maybe talking about the Secretary of State's, of State's race will. Uh, isn't that right, Jacob? Uh, yeah, one can only hope, Joey. <laughs> so we are talking about the Secretary of State's race, which is a big race in Nevada this year. And Jacob, you have been covering it. So to start off, explain to me what the Secretary of State is. Who, who is this person? What, what is their job in the state? Yeah, so the Secretary of State is in charge of a bunch of things, but I think the one that everyone knows now is that they're in charge of election administration. So they're the ones, when they get handed all the laws from the legislature, they figure out how to make it happen. They coordinate with county clerks. They run the state's campaign finance databases. They handle all kinds of candidate registration and, and all of the nitty-gritty stuff that, like— how do you make an election happen? That's all handled by the Secretary of State in conjunction, of course, with the counties and county clerks. They also help run the state's business administration systems. They, they do stuff like notaries, and they're in charge of running uh, business filings and, and getting all of the money from that. And, and so if you're ever having to set up an LLC or run for office, you're going to be dealing with the Secretary of State. Yeah. And so who is the current Secretary of State? And, and she's actually not running again, right? 
Yeah, that's right. The current Secretary of State is a Republican, Barbara Sagafsky, and, and she's been there for two terms. She's officially termed out, and she was actually the only Republican to maintain her office in 2018. You may remember that name because she came under fire from Republicans in 2020 when the Trump campaign was without evidence alleging massive voter fraud and the big lie and, and all of that stuff. We'll get into it later because it's still relevant. But certainly her office, I think, really came to prominence there. But she's she's been dealing with, I think, elections a lot. One thing to note, too, is that Sagavsky has been among a, a number of Republicans who have been censured by sort of the state and local party apparatuses. You know, a lot of county Republicans have taken to heart any Republican who hasn't embraced the Trump voter fraud theory, and to a lesser extent, Republicans who have not endorsed Republican candidates in the general election. Both of those things have become flashpoints. And so that's another thing that's sort of been central to the sort of late period Sagafsky tenure. Yeah. And so you were talking about kind of election denialism as, as still relevant. And, and, and I think exemplary of that is Jim Marchant, who is the current Republican nominee for Secretary of State. That's right. So Jim Marchant has really made his brand on being an election denier and saying that there was widespread voter fraud in 2020. So in 2020, he was actually running for Congress as a Republican in District 4 against Stephen Horsford. And at the time, he alleged that there was voter fraud in his race and demanded through the courts that there be a new election. That lawsuit was dismissed. But shortly after, he entered the, the race for Secretary of State this year, essentially arguing that if you want to change the election laws and stop the fraud, as he puts it, then it has to be done at the Secretary of state level. Now, he said a lot of things about elections in Nevada. He's basically said that elections haven't mattered for a long time, that when you vote, you're not actually voting for anybody, that the, the voting machines sort of steal away your votes and there are predetermined winners. And he has highly criticized vote by mail. He's been behind a push in some rural counties to get rid of electronic voting machines altogether and replace it with hand counting paper ballots. We've seen that in Nye and Esmeralda counties that's happening this fall. He is the head of what he calls an America First Coalition of Secretaries of State. You, you see other secretaries of state candidates it's in like Arizona, a guy named Mark Fincham, who have all sort of banded together around the idea that there was massive voter fraud in 2020. They're going to quote unquote fix it in 2022. And this will be relevant in 2024 if, like we expect, Donald Trump is going to run for re-election. And so that, that's kind of Marchant's big running point, right, is, is, is kind of voter integrity and protecting the vote, right? Yeah, and certainly there are other Republican priorities that he's talked about as well. I mean, for a long time, right, Republicans have said that they want voter ID, right? That's that's certainly not a new position, even before Donald Trump. He's also criticized the practice of ballot harvesting. It's also called ballot collection. It's the idea that before 2020, if you were going to file someone's mail ballot for them, you had to be a family member. And during the pandemic, Democrats in the legislature loosened those rules so that other people who were not family members could collect those ballots, aka harvest those ballots, and submit them to a, a drop box or an early vote location or something like that. Mm. That's become another flashpoint for Republicans that Marshawn has talked about quite a bit. And so let's move over to his opponent now, Cisco Aguilar. He's running as the Democratic nominee for Secretary of State. Tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, that's right. So Cisco Aguilar is a former member of the Nevada Athletic Commission. He's a lawyer, and he used to work for the old Nevada System of Higher Education Chancellor Jim Rogers. And he's positioned himself opposite Marchant in the sort of classic Democratic politician positions, right? He is sort of pro-voting access. 
He obviously does not believe that there was massive voter fraud in 2020. He's defended county clerks, and he's actually and he's actually called for additional protections for election workers, like poll workers and stuff, to make sure that they're not harassed by people while they're doing their jobs. But but he's also tried to you know talk about the same issues that Jim Marchant is talking about. So for instance, on the hand counting paper ballots things, I was interviewing him, and he told me that he he called it a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. So if that tells you sort of where he's coming from on some of this voter fraud stuff. That said, even though he's actually been pretty full of praise for the Republican Secretary of State now, Barbara Sagaski, he's also criticized the Secretary of State's office for dragging its feet on what's called a top-down voter system or voter registration system. It makes it a lot easier to clean up the voter rolls in the state. Yeah, and so both of these guys are going to be on the ballot come November. And, you know, what's kind of the expected outcome for this race right now? That is an excellent question. Let me consult my crystal ball, Joey. (laughs) So the thing is, is that Cisco Aguilar has raised a tremendous amount of money for a secretary of state race, and he spent a lot of money. Just this last quarter, quarter three, he reported raising over $1.1 million. Just the other week, he said that he was going to spend $1 million on a television ad campaign. That's a tremendous amount of money, like I said. And Jim Marchant, by comparison, hasn't really raised the same amount of funds. In that same time period, he raised about $89,000. So he hasn't really had the same kind of TV presence. He hasn't had the same kind of online presence as Cisco Aguilar. However, we've reached a point in American politics where it's so polarized that there are a lot of people who are looking at that partisan identity. And there's also a lot of people who, I should say, agree with Jim Marchant. I think when Jim Marchant goes to these rural communities, uh, rural county commissions, he's not receiving pushback, so his message counts there. He also has a little bit of name recognition left over from 2020. He did run for Congress. Everything here in Nevada is within the margin of error. And if turnout is low enough in Clark County, high margins in the rurals could mean that yep, Jim Marchant wins. But if Jim Marchant wins, it's likely that Republicans up and down the ballot are also winning too. All right, Jacob. Well, that's all we have on the Secretary of State's race. And you can find more of your reporting on our website, right? Yeah, that's right. So actually, you can find our On the Record series, which has all of the positions, much more than I talked about here for both candidates on our website and on our elections page. Alrighty, Jacob. Well, now going from the monster that is Nevada politics to something a little more fun. That's right, Joey, because we're going to talk about literal monsters. <laughs> or, or cryptids and, uh, you know, sightings of monsters here in Nevada. And, and to define cryptids for those who are unaware, Wikipedia describes it as a creature that may or may not exist. <laughs> And we want to make this clear up front, just to avoid any sort of War of the Worlds situation here, that none of these are based in any story of fact or science, but are purely first-hand accounts published in the early 1900s, the most reputable time period of human history. We (laughs) thought for Halloween it would be fun. So I'm sure if you live in northern Nevada, you've probably heard of Tahoe Nessie or Tessie, and we're not going to be covering her. (laughs) Uh, That's because she's gotten enough attention. I wanted to dig a little deeper and find some more obscure cryptids. The first story read is Space Clams. This is from an article published in 1956 in the publication Flying Saucers, the magazine of space conquest. And while this was published in 1956, the actual sighting, if it's to be believed, happened in 1925, which would make it one of the first UFO sightings in the U.S. So to read the transcript of the piece published in Flying Saucers in 1956 is our own Jacob Solis. This is space clams. 
I must write to tell you of what happened to me in 1925, which, I think, solves most of these UFO reports. I've never told this to anyone, but can get a signed affidavit if needed. Four of us were flying old Jennies, Ox-5 motors, over the Nevada desert. One plane was a two-seater, the one I was in. We landed on Flat Mesa near Battle Mountain, Nevada. The mesa is about 5,000 square feet, and the walls are too steep to climb, unless a lot of work is done. We wanted to see what was on top of this flat place. We landed at 1 p.m. While walking about the top of this place, we noticed something coming in for a landing. It was about eight feet across and was round and flat like a saucer. The undersides were a reddish color. It skidded to a stop about 30 feet away. Now, this next you won't believe, and I don't care, but it's the truth. We walked up to the thing, and it was some animal like we've never saw before. It was hurt, and as it breathed, the top would rise and fall, making a half-foot hole all around it like a clam opening and closing. Quite a hunk had been chewed out of one side of this rim, and a sort of metal-looking froth issued. When it saw us, it breathed frantically and rose up only a few inches, only to fall back to earth again. It was moist and glistened on the top side. We could see no eyes or legs. After a 20-minute rest, it started pulsating once more. We stayed 10 feet away. And so help me, the thing grew as bright as all get-out, except where it was hurt. It had a mica-like shell body. It tried to rise up again, but sank back again. Then we saw a large round shadow fall on us. We looked up and ran. Coming in was a much larger animal, 30 feet across. It paid no attention to us, but settled itself over the small one. Four sucker-like tongues settled on the little one. The big one got so dazzlingly bright you couldn't look at it. Both rose straight up and were out of sight in a second. They must have been traveling at a thousand miles an hour to get so high so fast. When we walked over there, there was an awful stench. The frothy stuff the little one had bled looked like fine aluminum wire. There was more frothy, wiry stuff in a 30-feet circle where the big one had breathed. This stuff melted finally in the sun, and we took off. So help me, this was an animal. I've never told this before, as we knew no one would believe us. I only write now because this animal would be one big 30-foot light if seen at night. I don't expect belief, but I simply had to write. Don't use my name. I'm still flying. But write if you want more information. And now for another monster, we have a few accounts of the Cactus Cat. These accounts were published in two books from 1910 and 1939. These books being Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwood and Fearsome Critters. Similar names and similar accounts. Here I've edited together Jacob's readings from both of those accounts of the Cactus Cat to create a more complete account of this peculiar little guy. This is Cactus Cat. Back in the 1800s, frontiersmen and cowboys spoke of a strange creature stalking the deserts, the Cactus Cat. Standing maybe two feet tall at the shoulder, but covered with thorn-like hair, it has sharp bones on its front legs and a branched, spiky tail. The barbs on its heads are further clustered into small, horn-like, rigid parts behind the ears. The Cactus Cat survives by eating the sap of common cacti found in the deserts where it lives. It uses the sharp blade-like bones on its front legs to slash open the cacti and feed off the sap inside. Unfortunately for the cactus cat, often this sap ferments and intoxicates the cat with its sweet, alcoholic-laden substance. The cat will then stumble off, drunkenly through the desert, in an alcoholic haze. Cowboys and other frontiersmen reported hearing the cactus cat at night, 
wailing in the darkness, and occasionally rasping its bony arms together. If the stories are to be believed, a cactus cat would even occasionally attack humans, drunkenly streaking into campsites, leaving large welts from its barbed skin as it lashed out at campers. Only the old-timers know of the beast and its queer habits. The cactus cat has thorny hair, the thorns being especially long and rigid on its ears. Its tail is branched, and upon the forearms above its front feet are sharp, knife-like blades of bone. With these blades, it slashes the base of giant cactus trees, causing the sap to exude. This is done systematically, many trees being slashed in the course of several nights as the cat makes a big circuit. By the time it is back to the place of the beginning, the sap of the first cactus has fermented into a kind of mezcal, sweet and very intoxicating. This is greedily lapped up by the thirsty beast, which soon becomes fiddlingly drunk and goes waltzing off into the moonlight, rasping its bony forearms across each other and screaming with delight. Occasional cases have been reported where the cactus cat flogged him to death with his spiny tail. Owing to the reddened blebs appearing on the victim's hide, such deaths were usually attributed by the laity to a severe attack of prickly heat. But the old-timers knew better. It was the cat. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.